If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking together at Peter's, this section in our continuing series of messages called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. As you remember, Peter is writing to a group of persecuted believers who are living in the provinces of what is now northern Turkey. They were going through persecution because of their faith in Jesus, and they were not a lot different than we are. They had never seen Jesus. They came to believe in him through the preaching of the gospel, just like you and me. They had believed that gospel and committed their hearts to Christ and began living for him. But they were living in a pre-Christian world, as you and I are living in a post-Christian world, and sometimes there's a price that you pay for living for Christ in a world that doesn't understand or want him. And as they went through that, they wanted to know, is our hope real? Is our placing faith in Christ worth it? Is this going to turn out to be really good? Are we doing the right thing? Can you assure us that this is right? And so he writes this whole letter to remind them of their living hope, a hope rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this section, he reminds them of their hope of living forever with God. Here's how he puts it in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Wow, let's pray together. God, these words must have been a powerful encouragement to that group of persecuted Christians as it's been a powerful word of encouragement through the centuries to those who have heard and believed it. This whole letter is about our living hope in a hopeless world. And today, I thank you for the reminder of the hope that we have of living together with God. And we praise you, Lord. Teach us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 37 years ago, when I met Carla, we were living 800 miles apart. Now, in those days, we had no cell phones, no Facebook or Instagram, no Skype or FaceTime. We didn't have electricity or automobiles or any of the other things that (laughs) we had in those days. But there were letters and there were telephones. So we called each other once a week on Saturday after 11 o'clock when the rates went down. Glad you're not living in that world. We got engaged, we got engaged, but I gotta tell you, being apart 800 miles was rough. And one of the things that kept us going was the knowledge that in just a short time, the wait would be over and we'd be together as a married couple. It was our hope. About 39 years ago, I met and fell in love with Jesus. And wanting to be with him is the desire of my heart. Now, I live in him and he lives in me, but I've never seen him. 
never seen his eyes, never heard his voice, never felt his touch. Not the way I want to, but someday I will. Someday I'm going to see him face to face. Someday the wait is going to be over. Every day that goes by is a day closer to that moment. Every day that goes by is one less day to wait. Because when you love someone, you want to be with them. That's the kind of hope that Peter was writing about to encourage these persecuted believers. You see, we're in a series of messages for a while called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. And Peter wrote to encourage these new believers to remember that though things were hard for them, they had a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you remember how he started this letter to them in 1 Peter 1, verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, this living hope is a confident expectation that you're going to receive what's been promised. It's living hope because it's a hope rooted in the promise of the living one, Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds him that Jesus told the disciples at the Last Supper that he was going to ascend to live in the Father's house, and he would one day come back to take them to be where he is. And so he went to the cross, he died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And Peter said he went through all of that for us, to bring us to God. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so he tells them, no matter how difficult your circumstances here, don't lose sight of the joy you'll be living with him there. Christians have a living hope that because of Jesus, they will live together with God. How can we have this hope? Peter tells them, because his sacrifice was sufficient to save us and his resurrection sufficient to guarantee our victory. We have the hope of living together with God because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to save us. He said in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Mark Leibowitz is a writer for the New York Times. And last year, he did an interview with Larry King, the longtime host on CNN of Larry King Live. And in that interview, he remarked how Larry King, who last year turned 81, seemed obsessed with dying. He's fixated on dying, he said. And he went on to say in this article after the interview, King takes four human growth hormone pills every day, and he claims he feels great. But in a case of death, King, 
king has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him. The so-called cryonics approach. Leibowitz said the king told me later that the people behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least if he, he knows he'll be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Other people have no hope, he said. And he's right, not about the cryonics part, but about the hope. You see, without Jesus, people either have a false hope like Larry King, or they have no hope. But in Christ, Peter said, we have a living hope. And that hope is ours because the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to save us from our sins. And Peter reminded these Christians, Jesus suffered for them in order to bring them to God. That's why it says in verse 17, for it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He suffered once for sins. See, our sins were the problem. It's the sins that separate us from God. They separate us from God now if they're not forgiven. And if we die with those sins still in our life unforgiven, it'll separate us from God forever. But Jesus died to pay for those sins, and his sacrifice was sufficient so that those who come to Christ have their payment made for them. Those sins are no longer counted against you. You are forgiven. He died once for all to save us from sin and death. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying when he said in Hebrews 9, verse 26, otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I can hardly wait. The righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And those who are in Christ have confidence to draw close now and when we see him face to face. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 10, when he wrote this amazing passage about coming to the most holy place. Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God, with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see it? We have confidence through the blood of Christ and the way he opened for us to come confidently before the throne of grace into the holy of holies. So let's draw close to him now. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, 
not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Those verses have been used, not wrongly, to encourage people, you need to be connected to church. You you can't forsake your assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. That's true. But people in the context they're writing about, when people are going through persecution, when you're living out there in the world for Jesus and paying a price for that, there is a need for us to be together more than ever. There is a need for mutual encouragement. There is a need to keep sharing that hope. We need to be together and all the more as you see the day approaching. And to drive home this point, Peter uses an illustration from the Old Testament to show how sure this salvation in Christ really is, how certain this hope is. He talks about Noah's ark and Christ preaching to imprisoned spirits. Amazing stuff. Look at verse 19. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. In one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, Peter said that when Jesus died... He died in body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And alive in the spirit, he went and preached, proclaimed to the spirits that were imprisoned. What's going on with this? Who is he preaching to? Who are these spirits and what did he say? Well, my best understanding is this, and I can be as flawed as anybody, but I believe he's saying this. During the three days that Jesus was in his tomb, in the tomb, his body lay dead. But Jesus was spiritually alive, proclaiming something to spirits that had been imprisoned. Who were the spirits? What did he proclaim? Most think they were either fallen angels or people who died in Noah's flood or both. But whoever they were, they were disobedient to God in Noah's day, and they were being held prisoner awaiting judgment for their disobedience. And we don't know exactly what he proclaimed to them, but most likely it was not the gospel in the sense of proclaiming so they could be saved. Remember, these people died in rebellion against God, or these angels died in rebellion against God. They're being held in this prison awaiting judgment. Remember Hebrews 9, verse 27, is appointed for man once to die and after that the judgment. Once you're dead and you've rebelled against God, there's no salvation for you. That's why Peter used the word proclaim and not evangelize. Different words. Proclaim he used as an announcement. I don't know if he announced the cross was real, your rejection of me was an error, I've conquered things at the cross. I don't know what the announcement was, but he went and proclaimed something of that victory. He was not there preaching the gospel so people could hear and be saved because they couldn't be saved. This was an announcement of what he had accomplished. And then Peter goes on to describe that just as Noah and his family were saved by entering the ark by faith, now people are saved by entering the ark who is Jesus by faith. Verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, 
to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Man, you know, there are days I wish this wasn't in here. This stuff is really hard to understand. A lot of different interpretations of this, but it seems pretty clear on its face. Peter said, there was a flood. And of all the people in the world, there were only eight people who were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. That's it. Everybody else perished. They weren't saved by the water. They were saved through the water. The flood was a sign of judgment. They were saved because by faith they believed God and came into the ark. And in the ark they passed through the water. So in the ark they were saved. The water didn't save them. But Peter said, what happened to Noah and his family in the ark passing through the water was a symbol. Verse 21, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. People, baptism doesn't save you, and that's not what Peter's teaching. If there was anywhere else in the New Testament that taught that, I'd be all over because all you'd have to do is say, oh, you want to be saved? Get baptized. It'd be that easy. Peter clearly states, it's not the physical water. You know the water that can remove the dirt from your body? That physical act of baptism, that's not what saves you. Any more than the physical water is what saved Noah and his family. Noah and his family were saved because they were in the ark and they passed through the water. You are saved when you come into the ark who is Christ, and when you pass through the water, it's not the water that saves you, it's the ark that saves you. You are passing through it as a symbol, as a sign that you are saved when you believed and came into Christ, and you are now passing through that judgment because you are safe in him. It is when you are in Christ, when you are baptized into Christ and the baptism of the Spirit, that is when you are saved. The water is a symbol. It's not the physical water, he said. Because you have a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. That phrase, a clear conscience, pledge of a clear conscience, is a very legal term. Put together with this, it might sound something like this. On the basis of God's law, I am justified to appeal the sentence of death that I deserved and be cleared on the basis of the fact that I died and I am in Christ and my baptism symbolizes my passing from death to life. It's the same thing Paul reminded the Romans of regarding the testimony of their baptism. You remember in Romans 6, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The term baptism has to do with identity. 
that we are identified with Christ. We are in Christ. We are associated with him. We are connected to him. That's the idea behind the word baptism. We are immersed in him is the idea. So Paul is reminding these Romans, don't you remember what your baptism symbolized? You were baptized into his death. You were baptized into his burial. You were baptized into his life. So what are you saying in your baptism? That I am in Christ and what? His death is my death. His burial is my burial. My old life is gone. His life is now my life. And I live for him. Just as Noah and his family were saved through water by being in the ark, Peter tells these people, remember your baptism? That's a symbol. It saves you also. You are in Christ. And you have passed through the water of judgment into life. So Peter tells them, by believing in Jesus and accepting his sacrifice as sufficient payment for your sins, you have a living hope that you, along with Jesus, will live together forever with God. And not only because his sacrifice was sufficient to save us, but we have the hope of living together with God because Jesus' resurrection is sufficient guarantee of our victory. Peter said in verse 21, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Tim Keller, founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, is an author and uh, writes a lot today about a walk with God, writes a lot about marriage. In a message he gave called Jesus Vindicated, he was telling about how when his wife was growing up every summer, her family spent two weeks on a small compound of cottages on the shores of Lake Erie. Now the cottages are all gone, he said. In fact, that part of the beach is gone. And whenever she visits that childhood vacation spot, she weeps because she knows the beach is irretrievable. That sense of irretrievability is like death, he wrote. And the older we get, the more we realize that certain losses are irretrievable, they're gone, and that can suck the joy out of our lives. But he said, here is where the resurrection offers something unique. Even religions that promise a kind of spiritual future or spiritual bliss can only offer consolation for what you've lost. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises more than that. In other words, he said, you don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wanted but never had, a spiritual perfect body that'll live forever. You don't just get your life back. You get a life back the way God designed it to be, the one you always wanted but could never achieve. That's why he goes on to say, so many people make sacrifices for the kingdom. And they think that somehow in these sacrifices, I'm, ir I'm not able to retrieve what I've lost. That I gave up this stuff in order to serve Jesus and now I, I can't get that back. I gave that all up, it's gone forever. So you hear people saying things like this. Well, I'm, I'm not going to marry somebody unless they really belong to Jesus. So I made that choice, and I never found anybody that really belonged to Jesus, so I, I guess I missed out on the joy of marriage. Or people who say, you know what, I'm going to hang in in this marriage because Jesus asked me to do it, but man, this is miserable, and maybe I could have had more fun with somebody else, but I'm doing this for Jesus, so I guess I'm missing out. 
Or here I am being committed to Christ, telling the truth, living for him, going through this persecution. And man, I'm suffering. And my life's passing away here and a lot of good times I'm missing out. Tim Keller said, don't believe it. You're not missing out on anything. You don't live for this life. This is temporary. It's short. In fact, he said, Jesus Christ is walking proof that you're not going to miss anything. Nothing. It's all coming in the future. It's going to be unimaginably wonderful. There is no religion, no philosophy, no human being who can offer this kind of future. And as Christians, our hope for the future is based on the historical fact of the resurrection. Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic priest, philosopher, and theologian of the 13th century said, God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of reason. Paul put it like this to the Corinthians, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. It's amazing. Peter reminded all of these believers who are suffering, you're not losing anything. You're gaining. And you know you're gaining because you already have the victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Peter tells them their faith is rooted in the historical fact of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Verse 21, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Not only has he conquered sin, death, and the grave by his resurrection, but he's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God with all power, all authority, and everything, angels, powers, and authorities, all in submission to him. So Peter tells these believers what? Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Your victory, your inheritance, your future is guaranteed by the one who now sits on the throne of all power. It's a hope firmly secure. So don't be afraid. And don't lose hope. All angels, all authorities, all powers are in submission to him. He speaks a word and kingdoms topple. He can heal diseases. He can raise the dead. He can do whatever. Or he can give you the strength to get through all of these things for his glory. And he's telling these believers, look, even the satanic powers and the earthly authorities that are persecuting you, they're under the control of Jesus himself. And God allows these circumstances for an eternal purpose, and he's working that eternal purpose together for good by his sovereign power. That's why people like Paul, who suffered so much for his faithfulness to Jesus, could write with such confident hope. even in the midst of what he was facing. Do you remember in one of the most powerful passages ever penned, all of it's God's word, but some of these are powerfully evocative for us to see the truth of who God is and his power that's at his right hand and everything he works sovereignly for his good. Romans 8, verse 18. Listen to what Paul wrote. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's no comparison. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Paul's saying, my hope is that one day all of creation is going to know the joy and the promise that every one of God's children has. Amazing. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We don't know how to pray as we should sometimes. We don't even know how to make sense out of what we're facing half the time, but God knows it. The Spirit of God knows our hearts and he knows the will of God. And in those deep, dark moments when you come to God, you don't even know what to say. The Spirit of God knows what to say. And he begins to pray for you. He begins to pray for you. According to the will of God. That's why Paul could say in verse 28, and we know, we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal. We're just waiting for the consummation. So Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? By the way, in this context, if you think the all things is just what you get on earth, you have shot way too low. He's talking about getting all things, including not only what God can give us here, but also what we're going to inherit that's the fullness of Jesus Christ forever is all things that are yours in Christ Jesus. Amazing. That's amazing. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Spirit of God is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're we're like sheep who are considered to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height 
nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Paul had such hope, because he knew Jesus' victory in the resurrection meant that was victory in his resurrection. Peter knew that hope. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, I love this. It is written, I believed, therefore I've spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. He died to bring you to God. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. What did Paul say about his life? I have suffered the synagogue sanction five times. I've been whipped and beaten with the cat of nine tails within an inch of my life. I've been stoned multiple times. I've been left for dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in danger. I've been thrown out of cities. I've been robbed. He's been through all of these things. And what does he write? Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. I don't care how much oatmeal you eat. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. You're not getting weaker, you're getting stronger as a Christian. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of our victory. And by the way, the details in the scripture are amazing. I wish I had time to develop this even more fully, but I just want to share this one you might think about. Because Paul wrote not only in regards to the salvation that we have by being in Christ, just like Noah was saved by being in the ark, but he's talking about Noah and the resurrection. Saves you by the resurrection. I was reading a piece by Warren Wiersbe. Just, just think about this for a moment. Genesis 8 tells us that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. God puts details in there for a reason. 17th day of the seventh month, the ark, the flood is done for him. They come to rest on the mountain. That would be a time later before they could come out, but the victory had been won. They had survived the judgment. They were sitting on the mountain in the ark safe. 17th day of the seventh month. In Noah's day, the calendar was measured from October was month one, and September was month 12. That changed with Moses and the coming of the ceremonial law so that their Jewish year began on April and went around to the following March. But in Noah's day, the seventh month, starting in October, would have been April. Now consider this. God said the ark came to rest in its completed victory on the mountain, raised up on the 17th day of the seventh month, which would have been April. Jesus died on the Passover. By law, it had to be the 14th of the month of April, of their month Nisan or Nisan. If Jesus was buried on the 14th of Nisan, their first month under the ceremonial law, 
Three days later, he was raised up on the 17th of the month. It's very possible Peter used this to demonstrate the detail and assurance that just as Noah landed on the 17th day of the seventh month, so Jesus was raised on the 17th day in victory. People, your salvation is so secure, Peter said, it saves you by the resurrection. It's guaranteed. He sits at the right hand of God with all power and authority. Your hope in Jesus will never be disappointed. When you know where you're going, when you know who you are and where you're going, it changes the way you live. Changes the way you live. I got to do this quick because I've been taking too long. We've been doing pretty good today on time, so I'll do this quick. January 2000, leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina, asked Billy Graham to come to a dinner where they were going to honor him. He's a little reluctant, but they talked him into it. They said, you don't have to talk much. Just come. We just want to honor you. So Billy Graham went, and they honored him. After they got done saying all these nice things, Billy Graham got up and he said, you know, tonight reminds me of a story I heard about Albert Einstein. Einstein was on a train. He was traveling, and the conductor came around to get a ticket. But Einstein couldn't find his ticket. He looked in his pockets. He looked in his briefcase. He looked all around. He couldn't find it. The conductor just said, you know what, Dr. Einstein, we know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. It's fine. Just relax. And the conductor went on collecting tickets. He turned around before he left the car, and he sees Einstein down on all fours, looking under the seats, trying to find this ticket. The conductor came back and said, Dr. Einstein, wait, look, we all know who you are. And we're sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. You, you don't have to worry. He says, young man, you don't understand. I know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Billy Graham said, you see this suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My wife, my children, my grandchildren are all telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious. So, he said, I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what that occasion is? This is the suit in which I'll be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I know where I'm going. People, you have a confidence like that? You can if your hope is in the one who lived, died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. A living hope, Peter said. A living hope that you're going to live forever with God. A living hope because the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to save us from our sins and bring us to God. Because we have a living hope that his resurrection was sufficient to guarantee our victory over death in the grave. I love the way Paul put it to the Thessalonian church when he said, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. People, I got to tell you, I say it all the time, and it's the truth. The best is not behind. The best is yet to come. God, thank you for this. This hope is so real. It's so real. Generation after generation, millions after millions of believers have joyously gone into glory knowing what awaited them on the other side would be better than anything they had ever asked or imagined. This is the living hope that's ours. It's the living hope in Jesus Christ. The one whose death was sufficient to pay for our sin. The one whose resurrection is our guarantee of victory. Thank you, God. Then in a world that has false hope or no hope, in Jesus we have a living hope. And we praise you in your precious name. Amen.